We're in Revelation chapter 10, but we're beginning in Genesis with creation, with the creation of man, the creation of woman, God's prohibition to man to, to, from eating the fruit of the, the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So the serpent tempts Eve, she eats, she gives it to Adam. He, she dies because he dies. When Adam died spiritually, that spiritual death then is handed down to all of his descendants. Spiritual death means separation from God, eternal separation. It is literally an eternal rupture, an eternal chasm that man cannot solve. We are born separated from him. We cannot bridge it through any human means at all. The law was never given as a means of bridging the gap that exists between God and man. The law exists, uh, if you will, the, God, the, the law of God is a spotlight that shows us that the chasm exists. Death was also relational. We see that with Adam and Eve, where they had been one flesh, now, all of a sudden, they are blaming one another. They're hiding from one another physically. They're hiding from God physically. But they're hiding from one another physically. The unity, the oneness that they had enjoyed has now become uh, an adversarial relationship. We're praying for people who are suffering in marriage and suffering from divorce. Uh, we exist in an adversarial world. We are adversaries with one another. We talked about a, a week or two ago when, uh, uh, last week, when those, those 200 million demonic entities are unleashed to bring about death and suffering on the face of the earth. And, and when uh, everybody on the face of the earth for, for five months is suffering intense pain, we talked about the reality that there's not going to be this softening of hearts and this sense that we're all in it together and we need to pull together, what that's going to reveal is just how much of an animal man really is. If you doubt that, read through the Old Testament and see what happens as Israel suffers and as, as others suffer. One of the curses against Israel for violating the law of God is that they would eventually consume their own children. And it's said that in 70 AD when the that when Jerusalem had been besieged by the Romans, the Roman governor, the Roman general rather, was was unwilling to to simply attack in force and topple it. He was trying to persuade them to surrender through a lengthy siege. It's said that at one point, walking close to the wall, he smelled food cooking. He smelled meat cooking, and realized that they were eating each other. And when they finally went in, mothers were literally cooking their children. This is what sin has done. It has separated us from one another. And death, sin obviously brings death that is obviously physical. Adam and Eve both begin dying at the moment they eat. It takes death quite a long time to catch up with them, as it did with all of those pre-flood people. They lived extraordinarily long lives. But they all died. Methuselah lived into his 900s, but he died. Death takes us all. Now here's the point of all this. At the moment Adam and Eve 
8, at the, the moment that Adam sinned, brought death upon himself and upon all of his descendants, God could have brought him to judgment. He could have struck him down dead, brought them to the judgment seat, and condemned, condemned them to eternal hell. But God didn't do that. He delayed. He delayed judgment. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, grow to adulthood, and they, they bring their offerings to God. Abel brings an animal. He was a shepherd. Cain brings an offering from the fields. And people have, have come up with various reasons why God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's. It seems to me the clearest reason is that it was Cain himself. It's not that Cain came with the wrong sacrifice, it's that he came with the wrong heart. And God warns him and says sin is crouching at the door like an animal and it wants to dominate you, but you're going to have to master it. And Cain, of course, was unable to master it. He struck down Abel. God came to him. God condemned him for the murder of Abel, but God delayed judgment. In time, as mankind grows to cover the earth, sin grows with mankind. And God plans a flood. He chooses Noah. The Bible says that Noah found favor with God. It doesn't say God found Noah favorable. There is nothing particularly righteous about Noah, especially as far as Christ is concerned. As far as the righteous requirements of the law are concerned, Noah fails. He is called righteous. He was a man of faith. He's imperfect. He bears within him sin and death. When God brought the flood, he could have killed Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives too and killed all humanity, but God didn't do that. He brought the vast majority to death, but he delayed final judgment. God delivered Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea, and after Israel had passed through the Red Sea, the Egyptian army passed through, and the sea collapsed on them, and they drowned. But God did not destroy Egypt. He delayed judgment. In the history of Israel, an 800-year span of time from the beginning of the judges with the death of Joshua through the captivity is about 800 years, and it is a nonstop repetition of idolatry. The book of Judges that covers 400 years of history is a book of idolatry, the idolatry of the very people God delivered out of Egypt. He never destroys them entirely. He delays judgment. The kingdom itself was split because of Solomon's idolatry and tolerance of idolatry. And virtually every king of Israel, the northern kingdom, is a wicked king. Uh, two-thirds of the southern kings in Judah are wicked kings, and most of their wickedness has to do with idolatry. And eventually God brings the Babylonians in. They capture the northern kingdom. Then 150, 200 years later, they capture the southern kingdom. And Israel could have been gone at that moment, but God delayed judgment. The Jews came back into the land. The Lord Jesus appeared exactly as he was prophesied by the Lord to appear. And the nation rejected him. The religious leaders rejected him. And the Jewish people in mass rejected him. And a few believed by the, the power of God and the, the election of God. But the rest rejected 
So the book of Romans says that they were cut off from Abraham and that we Gentiles were grafted into Abraham, but God has not utterly destroyed his people. He has delayed judgment. When we come to Revelation chapter 10, then we, we come to the first moment we have in Scripture where God says, I will no longer delay judgment. And he only says it once. Because when he brings judgment, it comes to stay. Revelation 10.1 then says, I, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. This is a description of a glorious, powerful, authoritative being who's been in the very presence of God. The cloud is used in the Old Testament to describe God's immediate presence. And this angel comes out of heaven still bearing the cloud of the presence of God. The rainbow over his head is a picture of the throne of God in chapter 4. His face was like the sun. Not providing light itself, I think his face was like Moses' face when his face glowed because he was in the presence of God. His legs are like pillars of fire. It's a picture of strength. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. That makes this a global event. The little scroll is revelation, which makes it the word of God. That's not to say that what he had open in the palm of his hand is the entire scripture, but at the same time, there's no way in any of the scripture to separate out one portion from the rest and to say there are multiple words of God. And so however much revelation this was and exactly what it says, it was holy scripture. He called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. It's curious that we see, these, uh, the, the, see this event here. John hears the seven thunders Sound. They have a voice, which means they're angelic beings. They're not just making a noise. They're saying something. But he's prevented from even writing it down. Why are we told it even happened then? I think because we're being reminded of the glory of God and the autonomy of God and the perfection of God that when he brings the world to judgment, there are things that will happen that are not for us to know. This is really, in a sense, none of our business. It's being said to those who are alive on the earth at the moment that this takes place. And perhaps it's the Lord wanting us to know that what he has to say goes beyond what he has said to us. Nothing that the seven thunders said would violate Scripture, would be contradictory to Scripture. It's simply not for us. So, by the way, if anybody tells you what the seven thunders have said, they're making it up. John didn't even write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. This is God then. He swears by God that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, 
the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The trumpet call of the seventh angel takes place in the 11th chapter and the 15th verse. So it's almost there. It's almost there. There's not going to be any delay. The mystery of God is going to be fulfilled. A biblical mystery is something that God has declared but concealed. So a mystery is not what John heard the thunder say. That wasn't written down. Just as he announced to his servants the prophets, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. The fact that God is going to bring an end to the wicked world, to the sinful world, that he's going to redeem his people and grant them eternal life in his presence, that he is going to deal with the wicked with justice and authority forever. The Lord has delayed judgment. Why is he delayed judgment? Uh, two passages in the New Testament give us some understanding of this, and other passages could be looked at as well. Romans three twenty-one through 26 says it's so that God might reveal his righteousness. Beginning at 22, it says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for those who believe. There is no longer wrath of God for those who believe. None. Jesus bore it all. Jesus paid it all. That doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline his children. He chastises us. He brings suffering into our lives in order to teach us, in order to, uh, in order to purify our behavior, in order to help us deal with sin, in order to remind us that we're not God and that he is God. Frankly, until he's dealt with our sinful flesh, we need some suffering to keep us humble before God because the first thing our sinful flesh will do is become proud. But the wrath of God is done for those who are in Christ. For 1,900 years, going back into the New Testament period and continuing through today, there are many who name the name of Christ who are convinced that they have to keep themselves saved, that they have to, by their own righteousness, deserve the salvation that they've given, that they've got, been given this tremendous gift, they've got a limited amount of time to prove that they're worthy of it, or they'll lose it. That's not true. Jesus bore the wrath of God for us. This is why Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you have peace with God, it's because God is at peace with you. God is in control of peace. You're not in control of your peace with God. He's in control. He's the judge. He's the one who determines whether there's peace between you and him or not. And having been justified, declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God if you've put your faith in Christ. And the reason you have peace with God is God is at peace with you. Now, I don't know if that distinction is meaningful to you. It's really meaningful to me to know that I have peace with God because he is at peace with me. 
This was to show God's righteousness, Paul goes on in Romans 3, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He delayed judgment. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just means God punishes sin. Justifier means God declares sinners to be righteous. How can God punish sin and declare sinners to be righteous? He does it because of what Jesus did on the cross. He punished my sin in Christ. And Jesus bore the wrath of God for me. And God, because of that, granting me faith to believe in Jesus then declared me to be righteous. He has not yet made me righteous. He has declared me to be righteous. It's as though he picked us up at the moment we believed. He took us to the day of judgment and declared us righteous at the end and then brought us back to live out our lives, to fail, to sin, to struggle, to believe, to rejoice, to worship, to wrestle with unforgiveness, to wrestle with every sin out there. But knowing that at the end, he has declared us to be righteous because Jesus bore his wrath. Uh, Why did God delay, delay judgment? To reveal his righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 3 deals with the issue of God delaying judgment as well. And it says there that Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the reminder of the holy prophets, or remember, I'm sorry, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, where is God's threat of judgment? He keeps threatening to judge, but he never has. And since he hasn't judged up to now, he obviously isn't going to. Peter deals with that attitude, and then he says to us, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should come to repentance." Why does God delay? Romans 3 tells us it's to reveal his righteousness in the wrath-satisfying death of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3 says God has delayed judgment so that all of his elect would come to repentance and be saved. If he had destroyed Adam and Eve at the very outset, if he had destroyed Noah, then all of those who are his people who were born among the wicked, would have died. So Romans 9 says God has has put up with, although he's willing to judge the wicked, he has endured the wicked 
in order to show mercy to vessels of mercy prepared for eternal life. God has delayed judgment, and he has done it for his own glory and for the sake of salvation. And Peter goes on, by the way, to say, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which means sudden and unexpected. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Not that he's going to clear away all of the caves and all of the hiding places on the earth, but that he is going to let the earth go to bits and pieces so that everything within it is revealed. Nothing will be concealed. So John has this message. This is what he's heard from this angel, the mighty angel who stands with a foot on the sea and a foot on the earth. There will be no more delay. It's the only time in Scripture God says, enough, it's time. That's out in our future somewhere. However far it's in our future, it was another 1,900 years in John's future. He's having a vision. He's not living in that moment, sending the Scripture back through a time machine. Nevertheless, it's a sobering moment to come across a place in Scripture where God says, enough. And at at this point, we're going to see everything happening over the next several chapters fairly quickly. He's going to make us wait for it to learn about the two witnesses and the seventh trumpet will will be blown and then there's going to be a a chapter, chapter 12, (coughs) where the Lord seems to pull back as far as he can, really, and show us a picture of Satan and the Savior and what God did with Israel and with Satan and with Jesus. And then the Antichrist will rise and the false prophet, and then we will see the 144,000 in heaven with the Lord, and then angels will will fly over the earth pronouncing the judgment of Babylon the Great, and then the seven plagues will fall and the the bowls of God's wrath and then we'll see the destruction of Babylon the great and then rejoicing in heaven. John writes in verse 8, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John describes receiving the revelation, receiving the word of God. 
and being told to, to eat it, which is reminiscent of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah says, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance on me, vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The word of God for Jeremiah became a joy and the delight of his heart. You know, when God calls Jeremiah in, in the first chapter, he tells him, I'm sending you to my people, and no, nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to repent. I, I've always wished that I had the gift of evangelism, but at least I can teach a little bit. And at least people are encouraged. And at least some of those people grow in their lives. I can't imagine being called by the Lord as a, as a young man or even a child and being told, you're going to spend your whole life doing this, and from a human point of view, it will be an utter failure. Nobody's going to listen. Jeremiah wasn't sent there to restore the nation to faithfulness. Jeremiah was there to preach so that the nation's uh, judgment was confirmed. And yet for Jeremiah, the word of God was a joy and the delight of his heart. In Ezekiel 2, God says to Ezekiel, You son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house, speaking of Israel. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, he says, Behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was, on, was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. That's not the good woe. That's not woe. This is a cry of pain and anguish. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. It's filled with mourning and lamentation and woe. But it is the word of God. And the prophet of God loves it because it's the word of God. When John ate it, and, and it's clearly a reference back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that picture that the prophet is filled with the word of God. When John eats it, it is as sweet as honey in his mouth, but it makes his stomach bitter because John understands that what he's receiving is a message of judgment. It's sweet because it's the word of God. It, it, it makes him sick to his stomach because of what it says. Both are going to be true in our lives. We're going to find the word of God is sweet to us. It's living and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We're also going to find that often what it says is hard. And if, if ever we say, this is too hard, I refuse it, then it, it will cease to be sweet to us. If we say, this is the word of the Lord, 
while our stomachs are rebelling against it, it will continue to be sweet. If we say, this is the word of the Lord, while our minds are continuing to wrestle with the contents, then it will be sweet, even when we don't comprehend everything that it says. But as soon as we stand in judgment on the word of God, it it will cease to be sweet. The New Testament example that that I see with us that's spoken to the church is not quite the same uh, language of eat, but I think that the same sense is represented. It's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Eat it. Take it in. Be filled with it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We do that by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I like teaching. If you, if you haven't guessed that, if you don't know that, I like teaching. I am usually guilty of over-teaching. See, if you look at this text and you look at the context and you look at the parsing of that verb and the way the adjective... See, I'm guilty of over-teaching. I'm fascinated by stuff. We're driving down from Creighton this morning and I asked Linda to look up, how much does it cost to charge an electric car? I don't have an electric car. I'll never have an electric car. It just kind of struck me that that would be something interesting to know. Which is the heart of being a teacher is first you've got to be in love with, with information and knowledge. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching, yes, good, awesome, teaching. And admonishing. No, let's get rid of admonishing. Let's make admonishing encouraging or exhorting. Come on, Donna, you're doing great. She's not looking at me. Neither one are looking at me. You're doing great. Keep it going, man. You're just climbing. That's encouraging. Admonishing says, Donna, don't do that. It's hard to admonish. But as long as we're in this this world of sin, as long as we're in these bodies of sin, teaching has got to be followed with Admonishment. The Lord says, trust him. Stop distrusting him. The Lord says, love him. Love him more. The Lord says, live in obedience. Stop disobeying him. See, admonishing just goes with teaching because of who we are. But when the word of Christ dwells in us richly and we teach and admonish one another, Paul says, then we begin singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God because the word is sweet, even though sometimes it gives us a stomach ache. The word of God is sweet. John found that it was sweet. Jeremiah did. Ezekiel did. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He clearly thought the word of God was sweet. I want to give you three admonitions, since we're supposed to admonish. First of all, when things get difficult, when sin seems to be flourishing around us, we can get discouraged. So the first admonition is don't lose heart. It's easy for us to say, there's nothing that is ever going to happen. This is the way it is. This is just the way the world is. Evil simply is. And, and right now it is. 
Right now it is. But it's not forever. Righteousness is coming. God is going to do what we've asked him to do, which is complete our redemption and bring the wicked to justice. Sweet and bitter. Don't lose heart. Second, don't be complacent. All of us at different points can be complacent about sin in the world and sin in us and about our relationship with Christ and about being in the Word every day and being in prayer every day. I I just feel this massive gravitational pull on me to keep me away from the Word and prayer. And I have to not get complacent. And at the same time, I have to be reminded that I'm not saved by my ability to purify myself. I'm not saved by my ability to be righteous or to live a righteous life. Jesus bore the wrath of God for me. He is on my side. The Holy Spirit is on my side to live a life that's pleasing to God. Don't get complacent. Don't lose heart. And finally, as was said to John, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What's coming for John as he prophesies is going to be bad news because he's proclaiming judgment now at the end. But for us, it's a proclamation of the gospel, which is good news. The gospel is good news. As long as there's breath in our bodies, there is a need to proclaim the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel is never done. It's never accomplished. Paul says this, and I don't know if we can take his statement about himself as as absolute regarding ourselves, but I think it's a healthy state of mind. This is Romans 1, 14 to 16. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am under obligation, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you. To get up in the morning and to leave the house and to think to yourself, I owe a gospel debt. I owe Kellen the gospel today. I owe somebody the gospel today. It has been given to me in trust. It hasn't been given to me to keep or to protect. It's been given to me to share. Who do I owe this debt to? That begins to raise all kinds of questions, right? How do I start? Where do I start? Who do I talk to? And I'll, and I'll tell you the truth. I have no clue what you're going to do. But Dwayne hit it on the head this week with Dennis and his wife. The gospel not only fills Dwayne's heart, it filled his mouth, and he prayed with this woman. See, that's saying, I owe, I have an obligation. It's not that I owe God. It's that I've been given something in trust and it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to others. And so Paul says, I am under obligation. I am eager to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. So what I, what I owe somebody today is the message that God has the power to save them from their sins. Will they hear? I don't know. Will they believe? I don't know. 
Paul doesn't seem to go into the response at all. He just says, I, I, I owe it to them. And in fact, I think you could even, I think you could even compare it to this. There have been times when I've been in urban areas and there, there are people panhandling and I, I have a, I do have a conviction that if I have it on me and it's mine to give, there's an obligation to give to those who are in need. And so at times I give money to, to people who are, who are begging. I don't do it every time. I don't always have something on me. None of them see, seem to have credit card things to run an ATM card through, so it depends on me having cash. And it depends on me having the liberty to give that cash. And I've been challenged a few times, what is he going to do with that? He's probably going to drink with it. Yeah, but see, that's not my problem. I'm responsible to give what I have to give. What he does is between him and his creator. I'm responsible to give the gospel to somebody. What they do with it is between them and their creator. I've got nothing to do with that. Paul said that he had an obligation. I don't know if we bear exactly that burden, but I think it's a healthy, godly way to think. It's a Christ-focused way to think. Don't lose heart. There's all kinds of reason to lose heart. Just read the news. Read Twitter. It's become a nightmare. Don't become complacent about the world. Don't let, don't let this, this idea that this is just the way the world is convince you that there's no point in resisting now that you've been made alive in Christ. And let the gospel of Jesus Christ fill your heart and fill your mouth and consider that you've got a gospel debt, that you, that you are holding this gift for somebody else today. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your scripture and the power of it and the truth of it. We know, Lord, that at some point in the future, there's going to be a proclamation that the delay of judgment is no longer in effect, that judgment is going to begin in earnest and at that point, Lord, very few, if any, will be saved after that because you've delayed judgment for the sake of saving your people. Right now, while the delay is still in effect, help us to not lose heart. Help us to not be complacent. And help us to consider that we may have a debt that we owe somebody else. We owe them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grant us your peace as we think about these things. Remind us that you are at peace with us, and so we have peace with you. Encourage us as we fellowship and as we go today. In your holy name we pray. Amen.